however you got through the pandemic, I'll bet it was with a subscription to something. I'll bet it was listening to a lot of music you grew up with or watching old films or something that would come for you, something that would remind you that we're all in this together and that we're all in the human experience together. And that's the arts. That was singer Tara DeMolan. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Welcome to part two of Tara's podcast with us. In this episode, Tara picks up where she left off in part one, with her move from Southern California back to her hometown of San Francisco around 2002. The conversation picks up on a recent episode of Brain Pickings that Tara heard. She talks about jobs she's had here, as well as her evolution as a singer, which started way back in Maine when she was eight or so. Tara reflects on what collaboration means to her as an artist, and ends the podcast with her hopes for the city as we emerge from the pandemic. Here's Tara. There are many, many ways to fall into traps. There are many ways to crash into a wall, right? There you can focus on your own story, your own perspective, first and foremost. You can be so reactive that you just can't be present for somebody else, or you can't see them as they are, or mm-hmm. you can't meet them where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wrote a, a little lengthy thing based on some recent experiences <laughs> where you just see something clearly that you weren't able to see in that space right. for whatever reason. Um, and sometimes it's undone work on our part. Sometimes it's, oh, maybe I still need to work on some worthiness and trust stuff, or maybe I still need to work on the part of me that can only be present for people who aren't present for me, right. you know, or give the most and treat the best the people who reject and abandon the most as opposed to somebody who shows up and gives a lot that kind of thing so there are many many ways but that was really interesting and um what were we just talking about that that fed into i'm not sure how we we segued off the we got into brain picking somehow right that was it was the brain picking was Mm -hmm. that was the beginning of the tangent of the fork but um uh, before that we were were talking about la cañada oh and like people yeah Yeah, people saying Oh, sometimes you're there for service. That's what it was. It was the right. the concept of finding patterns and purpose in something. Because if you go through a sad experience, the least you can do is get a lesson. And that was what I said. And that that's the connection. There we go. So that was what I said. And the thing is, it's like getting driving lessons. Mm-hmm. You know, that's our loving lessons. Mm-hmm. When things don't work out and they force you to examine patterns in yourself or to find purpose or to find reasons why they didn't work out, that's how we get to loving better or being better absolutely otherwise so, yeah. it's a wasted yeah it's like, otherwise what, what, it's a waste exactly and, nothing you know, worse than purposeless pain for sure totally and the like um unreflective life like mm-hmm. what you know what why would you not anyway well and if you're an artist then yeah. you carry all that that's all you the do art, <laughs> yeah. and you use the art to rescue what can't work you right. turn it into an opera or you turn it into a movie or you turn it into a song um and you develop another dimension. Absolutely. And I think that's really important, too, because I think you see everywhere the results of artists who were not able to go past a certain point mm. of vulnerability, specifically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there are a couple people, one of whom I'll mention, the other of whom I won't, because um, I don't want to put them on the spot. But um, Fran Leibowitz is a great example, right? brilliant, funny, creative, amazing person who's had writer's block for decades. Mm. And I do believe that 
to some extent, the limitations we face as artists mirror the limitations we face as people when it comes to how vulnerable we're able to be. Right. And when you look at some directors, for example, who have a um, kind of adversarial relationship with sentimentality, mm. because I'm a burgeoning female director, but I don't really have an identity in the film world. I have an identity in the music world. Um, but I do have a lot of friends in the film world, and I've gone to many film festivals and, and known many of the people who run those film festivals intimately and heard a lot of interesting conversations. And when you hear directors, people who shape narratives, talking about how you have to shy away from sentimentality, mm. that really that really lights up some red flags for me. You know, that's... that's to me, you would never say a conductor would never. You imagine, imagine, right? In our, in any culture, someone else who shapes a narrative, somebody in literature, you know, an author, a conductor. You say, take we're the emotion take, out of take it. the sentimentality yeah, yeah. out of it. Even if we're not saying emotion, let's say we say sentimentality specifically, okay. right? There's a distinction between schmaltz and sentimentality. First of all, right. secondly. Imagine how limiting that is. I mean, you've basically turned yourself into the Black Knight now. You know, you're, yeah. you're just, you're stuck. And I think that's one of the reasons why some of these directors who have that position have gotten a lot of other people to write their screenplays in recent mm. years because they've hit a wall mm -hmm. and there's only so far you can go if you're living under that kind of cool, cynical umbrella. And we are sitting in Vesuvio. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And... You know, the birth of the cool brought a dearth of the real kind of thing, you right. know, and I think that one of the revolutions we're having now artistically is reintegrating sentimentality, reintegrating sensitivity and more voices, and that's always a good thing, and more perspectives. Different perspectives. Yes, exactly. Different perspectives from the dominant perspectives, and that can only make us all grow better. Absolutely. Because... You don't get that limitation the same way. You don't get that, that in the same way that privilege limits, right? You just cut off so much. And what do you have left? You have something that is Brigadoon. It's very beautiful. It's very interesting. But you can't go past a certain boundary. And after a while, you're going to get really bored. And re it's going to get really samey. It's rote and, yeah, yeah and predictable. It's stunning and, uh, yeah. in many ways. But, you know, and even those people, even those directors who feel that way, you ask them who their favorite people, who their favorite directors are. They'll say Fellini, they'll say Kurosawa, right? I'm like, all right, I'm sure that, you know, you've seen, oh God, eight and a half or something, something that would make most women just cringe. Um, you see something that is objectively viewed as, you know, one of the great films of all time. Okay, but is that the film that stays with you? Right. Because I always like to challenge people who get into those kinds of artistic debates, philosophical debates on sentimentality versus cynicism or... Um, the merits of, of going one direction versus another or, or eschewing a one direction entirely, right? Mm -hmm. I always like to say, okay, what do you think are the top 10 greatest films ever made, for example, right? Just riff on it. Have a couple drinks. What are the top 10 greatest films? Okay, what are your top 10 favorite films? What are the top 10 films you've played more often than not? Right. Don't tell me you don't watch Love Actually every single Christmas. <laughs> you know, right? right. Because... Okay, you can tell me that your favorite film is, I don't know, whatever, Citizen Kane, The Godfather. Um, Fellini, right? You might say eight and a half. You might even say Dolce Vita. But in Dolce Vita, 
Is the scene that stood out for you that made you want to be a filmmaker the scene where Anita Ekberg is getting beaten up by her stupid American boyfriend? Or is it the scene where she has the kitten on top of her head and she's dancing? Or is it the scene where they're in the fountain? Or is it the scene where he's chasing, he's running after the dream up the staircase, you know? That's sentimentality. Totally. You know? Ikiru. I love the Magnificent Seven. Not, you know, not the Magnificent Seven, Seven Samurai. But um, both of them, really, but the source material. I love Seven Samurai. I love Rashomon. I love all the Kurosawas. I have never seen a Kurosawa that I don't like. Ikiru on the swing with the tears in his eyes, singing as the snow falls before he dies of cancer because he's made his park. Get, I, can we curse Beauty, on this thing? Absolutely. Get fucked. Yeah. You know, yeah. don't you tell me sentimentality doesn't have a place in art and doesn't have the place in art because you, every movie you love, everything that inspired you to be a musician, an artist, a painter, a dancer, you know, a filmmaker, no matter what kind of filmmaker you are, that has some roots in sentimentality, and you would never tell an author not to be sentimental, and you would never tell a conductor not to be sentimental. So don't look at me as a female filmmaker and tell me, oh, well, you're a woman, you're gonna be a sentimental filmmaker. Come on, have you ever seen the Ang Lee Sense and Sensibility? Right, <laughs> you know? right. Sentimental filmmaking is very much for guys too. I think we're talking about connections mm -hmm. too, right? Like that's- Absolutely. It's a, it's a way, of, way to connect. I think there's a fear of connecting in certain artists, producers, directors, where it sets up more of a terrarium, and it can be a great terrarium. You can be looking in on something that is utterly fascinating, but there's that, that barrier always there. And I think that one of the great things about having different voices, um, especially more people of color and women, mm -hmm. is that you see less of that fear and you see more of the challenge to the status quo. You see more of the challenge to what it is we call great. Mm -hmm. I was talking about this recently with friends of mine and somebody asked if it was a test. I said, you know, I think every boyfriend I've ever had recently, I think two or three in the last 10 years or something, um, I took across the street to the Beat Museum mm -hmm. and took them to the shelves of literature that are widely considered to be the best American literature. Mm -hmm. And the person interrupted me and said, was it a test? And I said, no, it wasn't a test, but it was just a perspective thing. It was mm -hmm. just a, have you thought of things from this angle? Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, let's look at these, you know, this is all of the great literature, great American literature, you know, rape, 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 left wife and newborn child at home to score drugs in Mexico and fuck underage prostitutes, right. you know, assault, whatever, right. trivialization. And so, if you're a young woman reading on the road, it's very different. If you're 15 and a girl reading on the road, it's a very different perspective from being 15 and a boy reading on the road. And again, totally. value-wise, nothing's necessarily better or worse. Right. But if you don't have that perspective at all, if that perspective never gets a voice, I heard how limited are we as artists and as a culture? I heard something interesting recently. It was like, uh, to bring it back a little bit to pop culture, but like, there's something about Mary, but from her perspective, oh, yeah. would be a horror movie. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so many movies we grew up with. Good God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was that genre, the American Pie sort of genre, right? Mm -hmm. That was very popular when we were growing up. Um, I haven't seen most of those movies, or if I have, I saw them when they came out, and I haven't seen them in a very long time. Don't remember most of them. Blocked them out. You know, it doesn't bother me that they exist, but 
if they're canonized or if they are considered the default standard, that's when you have a problem. Products of their time. Yeah, the I products think they of their were, time. Um, and, and, and perhaps good, like, oh, well, look how much we've progressed Exactly. Seth Rogen recently. That's where I... Right. We were talking about this with Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen yeah. had that great kind of riff on... Um, you know, it's not about cancel culture. This is part of the trail of breadcrumbs we have to how we evolve as a culture. You preserve those things to say, oh, yeah, this was okay. This was okay to say back when we were kids. This was how we lived. This is the world that we grew up in. And isn't it marvelous mm -hmm. that now, you know, it's young girls, for example, are growing up in the post-Me Too world where owning different ways of being is celebrated. Mm -hmm. And I don't begrudge or regret one bit the fact that when I was bold and authentic and confident and growing up I was just shamelessly battered for it right um, censured and called every name in the book and still am sometimes you know um, I think if you're authentic that's always gonna be the way though <laughs> I think especially if you're an artist and you're authentic sure. you're gonna have some haters that's just the way it goes but um, oh god we were not received well and it's so nice to see the the Taylor Swift shake it offs and the Lizzo's and the many wonderful, you know, role models. I love Dua Lipa. Mm -hmm. I love her. Mm -hmm. I love her whole thing, you know, the catalog, the style, the perspective. I love that young girls are listening to this and singing Absolutely. these songs and, and that that's the world they're growing up in. It's great. Okay, take a drink. Mm. We're going to go back. Uh oh. We're okay, yeah. So let's uh, sorry, let's go back to you. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> we can skip the rest of the in between between moving to Southern California okay, and then coming back. The short version is yes, I lived in Southern California. I, I hated Southern California with a blood red passion, um, and I couldn't wait to leave. And I found myself out of college and living out of my car. And I thought, I'm almost completely broke. I'd rather be almost completely broke in a city I like. And I thought, all right, well, I have enough to fill the gas tank. In those days, if you had a 1991 Toyota Corolla, the gas tank was maybe, I don't know, $12 at Arco or something. So I filled the gas tank, drove up, filled it again, and I had about, it was either two or three dollars, whatever bridge toll was in 2002. That's what I had left. And I handed it to the toll in taker. In cash. In cash. Of course, first in of cash. All, Everything first was cash of all, in those there days. was a toll taker. Oh, and yeah, they there was a toll cash. taker. Yeah. And the Bay Bridge toll was, I believe, two dollars. Let's go two, yeah. And I handed them my last two dollars and entered the city with nothing. Lived out of my car for a while. Got a job at Tower Records, which I dearly uh, miss. Oh, Tower Records. Oh, the last I used tower? To live at the, yeah, well, the Columbus and Bay. Yeah. I used to live at the Classical Annex during lunch, mm. talk to all those guys there, mm -hmm. talk opera. They had a cardboard cutout of Maria Callas, and we would sit there yes. and debate opera with, with Maria Callas staring on. It was great. Quick question. Yeah. In all the time since you had left and all the places you had gone and lived, mm -hmm. had you come back to San Francisco to visit, or was it just oh, the yeah. memories that you were going on? No, I might have come back once or twice in the 90s when we all loved San Francisco and Hate Street was really hippified, and they still had... I collected... Um, Bill Graham posters and Avalon Ballroom posters. So they still had a bunch of those kinds of places with like a grizzled old guy who would tell you about when he actually went to the show. The show. Yeah, yeah. I, of course, was in love with 60s acid rock. And part of the reason I came to North Beach when I came back was because of Paul Kantner, because I was on the Jefferson Starship message board. 
And um, more yeah, about I was that, a regular please. On the, oh, it's called A Deck. Yes. And the reason it's called A Deck is because of a song called "Have You Seen the Stars Tonight?" Would you like to go up on A Deck and look at them with me? Um, Paul Kantner, who gave many interviews in Vesuvio, mm-hmm. right where we're sitting, right. And who had many great lines. One of my favorites was vodka, espresso, and a thousand cigarettes. Everything else is superfluous. Yeah, um, yeah you know. That was his breakfast every morning. He was, he was giving Hunter Thompson a run for his money. So he would go up to Trieste and have his espresso with his lemon rind and sit there and smoke a thousand cigarettes. And he would describe North Beach on this message board. And I couldn't mm. remember North Beach from when I was a kid because I was mainly in the hate. Hate, yeah, yeah. Hate, Castro, Sutro Park, you know, that kind of general area, right? And, um, and he described it, and I thought, that sounds like my people. Artists, edgy, you know, different. Okay. And I came up and I used to hang out with him. Okay. And then when I moved to San Francisco, I just decided I would move to North Beach. And I got lucky, and um, I was a part of the cafe culture because I sang and wrote music and performed around. And that might be a good segue. So (laughs) your singing, like, did it start then? It must have gone back a little bit. No, I mean, I was singing since I was a year and a half old, singing along to commercials. Let's talk about your singing, your evolution as a singer. Okay, all right. Yeah, why not? When did Um, you start singing in front of strangers? example the first time I ever sung publicly in a setting that would be a lot of strangers um, was in Maine okay and this wonderful man named Douglas Day would come in he was a troubadour and he would come in and he would teach third graders little fun songs but I remember them and to this day I remember them he would play these folk songs and one of them was the my dog ate my homework song and the chorus was, my dog ate it, hoo-hoo, bow-wow-wow, my sister threw it away. My mother vacuumed it up, and the kids would sing, she sucked it up, she sucked it up. And she said it's okay or something, right? And he had um, a couple of albums. He helped me arrange a song when I was eight or nine. I wrote a song about Orpheus and Eurydice. <laughs> I was very into Greek mythology. Um, and I wrote a song about Orpheus and Eurydice to the opening tune of some Doug Stone, who is an old school country music guy no one's ever heard of anymore. Um, there was a, a violin intro to one of his country songs that I kind of took part of the melody and adapted it and composed a, a song. I've never been, I've never learned music theory. Okay. Um, that is a challenge, always. But. He helped me arrange it, and I performed it at eight or nine in front of a group of people, and it was the first time that people that I knew, people that were my peers, came up and said, wow, I had this crystalline soprano voice. It was before I got my my version of the guy voice changed. Right, right, right. <laughs> the deepening. Yeah. Um, and people I didn't know came up and, and started talking to me, and I had always been so alienated because I moved every single year. Right. And in Maine, I was building a literal ice fort during recess. Yes. Yes, while everyone else built a snowman. It was very, there were lots of metaphors. Um, <laughs> but that kind of gave me faith that I might be able to connect to normal people again because mm. no one in my peer group had been through even half of the things that I had been through. Right. Um, there were pretty much every form of abuse, a lot of neglect, a lot of you know just a lot of difficulty a lot of chaos so by the time I was eight or nine no one in my peer group had been through that I had no no support structure to talk about that so 
Instead of that, I had an in to talk to people about other things or for people to approach me. I wasn't unapproachable anymore. I wasn't right. completely alien from everybody. So that was a really interesting experience. And I think that's what kind of kicked off the idea of doing that more publicly because I think I could have done composing and writing and poetry and private things. But art for the sake of bearing who you are to the world and, you know, like Jackson Brown says, hold out your only candle. And some people are going to be ready for it. Some people aren't. And that's okay. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. I think when you get out of your 20s, you have a different perspective on art, especially your art. And you don't really have an agenda like you did then. You're not necessarily trying to make it a career, although it'd be lovely to make a living doing just what you love. And you're not necessarily trying to get fame or fortune. You're not really trying to build a name for yourself or self-branding. You're just wanting to put the product of your experience and your perspective out into the world. And if it's received, great. And even if only one person says, this really changed something for me, um, this gave me the next stepping stone on my journey, wonderful. I mean, what the hell are we here for? God, I hope it's that, you know? What was your first time singing in San Francisco? Oh, I don't remember. I don't actually know. Okay. Um, but I will go back to that. So the main yeah. thing, and then in Texas, I think I, oh, yes. In Texas, I was Evita in an Andrew Lloyd Webber dinner. Yeah. <laughs> I sang Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. Yes. And um, Before Madonna or after? Oh, God, yes. Well, of course it was. Yeah, before, what was that, 1996? Sure. Ish. I, yeah. Yes, but I was so in love with Jonathan Price once upon a time. Oh my God, when he was Pomperon in that movie, I was so excited. Um, yes, it was. What would have been 1994, sure. yeah. five maybe. Yeah. Um, and everybody thought I was in my 20s. I was 12. <laughs> so the voice had changed. Oh yeah. Yeah. By then the voice had changed. Okay. I was eight maybe when I sang the Orpheus and Eurydice song. Um, Yes, but I sang Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, and everyone loved it. And then I realized, oh, maybe I could make a career off of this. And when I got older, I never had formal voice training. I never had music theory training, and I really wish I had. Mm. I think that would have made, it would, it would have given me a lot more tools. And mm. I think that's another thing that when you get out of your 20s as an artist, the way that some people do cost-benefit analyses is kind of the way that you look at passion and limitation. And there are certain um, limitations that passion can overcome, and there are certain limitations that no amount of passion will really overcome with the time you have left, let's say, and the, the brain elasticity you have left. So then it becomes more about collaboration. Okay. How do I want to collaborate? Who do I want to collaborate with? to bring some of these visions that I am not prepared to let go of into reality. Um, and that is an interesting new track, because I think sometimes when we're young, we want to try to do everything by ourselves, or most things by ourselves. And when we get to a certain age with our creative life, we realize we never know how much time we have left, but even if we have 20, 30, 40 years left, you know, I, do you remember the viral video, David Goes to the Dentist? It's a uh, four-year-old who's a little, boy, little, in the little boy in the back seat. Yeah, and he's yeah. going, am I alive? Yeah. 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 
that's the pace at which I compose. That's the pace at which I can read music. Right. So if you know that about yourself, right. if you know you are the David goes to the dentist equivalent of you know writing and reading music, then you start thinking, okay, who can I get to help me arrange this? Because I hear things in my head, I just can't replicate it myself. So that's a limitation that you're talking about. Limitation, and but there's still the passion. Over, passion overcomes. There's determination and the passion to say, okay, I could let this project go. And if it's not significant enough in my life, maybe I will let this project go. But another project, you think, I want to leave that in the world. I want that to be part of what I contribute to the world and what carries on, you know, what, what gives a purpose and a pattern to my having been dropped here into human consciousness for this span of time. That's yes. what I want to still be left over for however long. Um, and I think that also is something that's helpful when you have different perspectives and different voices. I think having more women and people of color really helps in that too, because I don't think people without power care as much about legacy and how long their art lasts. I think a lot of us kind of go, yeah, it's okay. We're footsteps on the beach and we're going to get washed away pretty quick and that's okay. You know, build the tower as close as you can get it to the stars, you know? And, right. And then walk away from it into a new direction, whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about what happens to it. It doesn't really matter. You know, someone else saw it and wrote a poem about it. Yeah. Can anyway. we... Yes. No, no, Sorry. No. I keep, we keep going off no, no, on no, no, tangents. No, no, no. I know no, there tangents was a reason. Are, tangents are I great. I don't remember the first time I ever performed in San Francisco. That's okay. I performed many times in Europe going into cafes and just sort of starting a set and paid for my trip that way. I've performed many times in the city, but um, the most in-demand genre for a vocalist tends to be jazz and American standards, which is fine, but has a lot of lyrics like, told me love was too plebeian, told me you were through with me, and because there was a lot of trying to out Noel Coward, Cole Porter each other in those days mm -hmm. that sometimes took a little of the raw guts away from some of those beautiful pieces that I like to get a little closer to the raw guts of that in my okay. work okay. and um, in the other work that I like to perform that is not jazz or American standards. Um, but that was most of what I did in San Francisco. So I was written up in San Francisco Magazine, and I once upon a time had a career pre-COVID and Didn't did a lot all. of jazz. Yes, yes, Didn't it was it was a lovely all. time. So um, we we have a lot here. Um, yes. Nine, you've been here 19 years. I have. Um, you've seen a lot of change. Yes. Do you want to talk about what you... Like, not only your place in the city as we emerge, literally mm -hmm. what we're doing right now, but, like, um, just what you see in, in the near future for San Francisco and your place in it. I wasn't kidding about the Salesforce dildo building. I do think we should look into the zoning rules and have the city take possession of it, cut the top 20 stories off, and turn it into homeless housing. Um, the future of the city... Artistically, politically, everything. All of it. All and, of it. Or okay. any, any, yeah, or any of it. We can do that in two say. minutes. Any, any of it. <laughs> any of it. Um, I think that we historically have been, have tried to be, have sought to be, at the forefront of the progressive turning the oil tanker around click by click um, of, for the whole country. Mm -hmm. I think if we could get kind of out in front of the arts funding post-pandemic, that would be really nice. Um, particularly because Texas has sent a lot of people to Austin or 
down the peninsula, down Reno, down the peninsula, Oregon, where have you, wherever. Um, And one of the real tragedies during my lifetime is how many of the artists had to leave because they couldn't afford to live here. Right. And how many of the service people had to leave because they couldn't afford to live here. Yep. So what's a real strategy for that? Right. And what is a real strategy for property ownership within the city for people who intend to stay here and live here and work here, here, as opposed to pied-à-terre for people who do not live here, owned by firms, who knows where. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that if we could get out front of the arts funding, I saw something, saw an article on something, there's a a moderate amount that was set aside, and that's good. By the city? Yeah, I believe by the city, yes. Okay. Could have been the state, but I think it was the city. And that's good. But I think we should expand on that. I think that is what we need to start setting the progressive standard and seeing the arts as essential. And I think the pandemic was a big wake-up moment for a lot of people because... You know, however you got through the pandemic, I'll bet it was with a subscription to something. I'll bet it was listening to a lot of music you grew up with or watching old films or something that would come for you, something that would remind you that we're all in this together and that we're all in the human experience together, and that's the arts. Or at the very least, you missed yes. going to the Or you exactly, those oh my things. God. Oh, I went we're to the symphony like a- the other day. It was beautiful. I mean, they. you notice that there's, there's a lot of... Um, Venn diagram overlap between certain symphonies with, mm. with the pieces they're selecting now because there are only so many non-masked performers that they're allowed to right. have. So you see a lot of like, you know, Britain Serenade and you see a lot of Verklote Nacht and you see a lot of, um, oh, what was the other one? Oh, Adagio for Strings, Barbie. You see a lot of things, you know, where you see Dudamel doing it and then you see somebody else doing it. So it was wonderful. Um, but it felt like an episode of the Twilight Zone. I mean, I saw maybe 200 to 300 people. Right. And it's just, it's eerie, but we're so excited to be back. And just riding that wave of energy is so important. But you got to put the money where the energy is. You know, it's not enough. And San Francisco really needs to be out in front on that. Politically, we need to link up networks. We've always been good at networking. We've always been good at activism. Let's merge all that together and get some long-term funding for the arts. The $1,000 a month for artists stipend is great, but we need to put more into the artistic institutions too um, because that's our bread and butter and that's our cultural backbone. And we are often perceived within and without our borders as being these troglodytes who don't, don't favor the arts as part of our culture. But I don't believe that's true. I just think that sometimes in the priorities, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, and you know, we as artists need to be a little squeakier, I think. That was Tara de Molan. On the next episode of Storied San Francisco, you'll get to know Joey Yee, aka Uncle Fuzz. Episode 14 drops next Tuesday. Music for the podcast was produced, performed, and curated by Otis McDonald. Original photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. Aaron Lim of Bitch Talk Podcast is our contributing producer. And the show is produced and hosted by me, Jeff Hunt. Now in our fourth season, we have more than 150 episodes available on our website, storiedsf.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
you can, subscribe, rate, and review our show so we can reach even more folks. And if you'd like to drop us an old-fashioned email, we'd love that. The address is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay strong, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a proud member of the BFF.FM podcast network. Learn more at podcast.bff.fm. BFF.FM, best frequencies forever.